welcome to the Weekly Skeptic episode 71. I'm Nick Dixon here with Ron DeSantis fan Toby Young. And coming up, Trump wins big in Iowa, the Tories lose big in Lord Frost's new poll, and has Gary Lineker tweeted off more than he can chew or ex-posted off, as we have to say now, plus loads more. And of course, peak woke. But Toby, how is your dry January going? Yeah, it's going okay, Nick. Um, I have to confess, um, I have fallen off the wagon now twice, which isn't very impressive. Um, You've already fallen off the wagon <laughs> twice. Yeah. I'm doing it just in sympathy, and I haven't fallen off the wagon once. Oh, that's very. No, I'm doing it for myself, but yeah, it's. This is, I'm thinking I might not even ever drink again. You twice. What date is it? <laughs> the sixteenth. <laughs> I went it's out. Sixteenth. I, I I went out um, last Monday, um, and uh, and I had I was at a lunch actually, and um, and there was someone at the lunch who was very insistent that 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 I drink and I, I was you know, I was too weak willed to resist the kind of extraordinary pressure this person was uh, exerting on me um so I decided I would just to to keep him happy just have one drink and of course then I immediately thought oh well that's it I've um I've broken my vow so now I can, might as well just you know go all in um well, I didn't get drunk but uh, when I got home um Caroline said if you've been drinking, you seem a little altered. And so I had to confess and she was, you know, not angry, but disappointed. Um, but um, I did actually... Cons- Hang on, that was the that was, that was the first one. So that was the first one. And then um, later in the week, um, I was at um, uh, another... And actually, uh, I'm getting the... Because I've been drinking so much, I'm getting the timelines mixed up. <laughs> but, no, sorry, that was last... Fr- that, was, uh, that, was, that was on the Friday before last... And then on the mon on mon on Monday last, oh, is that right? Oh God, no, no, sorry, that that, that was the Monday. <laughs> we don't need the exact <laughs> days. The point is, you're drinking all the time, <laughs> no, no, day I after drank, day. I drank twice. Hammered. I can't now remember when I, but I drank twice last week, <laughs> uh, which was pretty pretty shocking. It's all a blur. Um, and uh, but I, I'm I'm now back on the wagon, and I was supposed to go to an event tonight um, after this podcast, but I've I've cancelled that in part because uh, I'm not sure I have the willpower not to drink at that event. I find it very hard to go out and not drink. So my, my policy now is just to stay in for the rest of uh, January. But um, I did speak to um, a guy called Tony Edwards, author of a book called The Very Good News About Wine, who is a contributor to the Daily Skeptic, to ask him what the optimal amount is. So he's rather unusual um, in that he's um, a medical journalist um, and has done some really has done a really deep dive into all the scientific literature around whether alcohol really is bad for you and what the optimal amount to drink is each week. Um, and um, I actually, we've communicated about this, and he's told me that a, a, a third of a bottle of red wine every night is better for you than drinking nothing. And even if you go up to two thirds of a bottle, um, the benefits probably outweigh the cost. It's only if you go above that that the costs probably outweigh the benefits. Um, so I took great reassurance from that. And actually, my mistake, Nick, has been in not drinking regularly during the month of January rather than not drinking on most days and then falling off the wagon on a couple of them. Um, but uh, so my plan from the beginning of February, following Tony Edwards' advice, is to drink no more than half a bottle of red wine when I do drink. And I'll allow myself to do that four times a week and try and limit myself to 100 bottles over the course of the year. And I will, I hope, have built up some credit 
over the month of January by staying at home and not drinking for the rest of January. Yeah, it's better for you if you stick to that. I mean, that's always a big if, isn't it? But who are these it people is, who yeah. can just stick to that? Much well, easier to go cold turkey like well, I do. I've, I've, I, I wrote about it in The Spectator and asked for readers' advice um, about how to stick to my 100 bottle a year limit. And one bit of advice, which I thought was quite good, was that um, after you've had your half bottle of wine each night, assuming you're at home, you then have a milky cup of tea or go and brush your teeth. So you know that the next glass is not going to taste right. It's going to taste horrible. Uh, and in that way, you know, even if you feel a little bit weak-willed, you rush off and drink the milky tea or brush your teeth. And then that really kills the temptation to have another glass of the good stuff. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah, I mean, that, that could work most of the time, couldn't it? I mean, that's, why doesn't that work for, like, diet? You know, because my problem is more just eating junk. Just constantly brush your teeth after eating something. I mean, that could work, couldn't it? It might help a bit. You yeah. brush all the enamel off your teeth because I'd have to do it after that. Because I like my problem is eating chocolate and things. Not it's not yeah. drinking. Yeah. I just I do brush my teeth a lot. I'd have to be brushing them. I already brushed them like several times a day. I mean, it would be ridiculous. <laughs> I've actually ruined the enamel. I, I thought it was great brushing your teeth just constantly. There's actually a downside to it. You destroy the okay. enamel. No one told me that. Right. I thought this is great. I'm nailing this with just ridiculous OCD. But there's a downside to everything, Toby. Well, I mean, I'm amazed that you've fallen off the wagon twice i'm stunned because you said not only were you going to do dry january you said you were going all the way to lent is what you I was, told me I was, I was talking a big game um my, my, <laughs> i was i was I stuck yeah. to it easily <laughs> well done yeah easily and someone I, I could have seen someone last night and i i didn't but i wouldn't have drank anyway and then i've got a birthday thing i won't drink at that is it very easy for me very easy i should say that i definitely i definitely feel better for drinking less albeit not being completely on the wagon. I'm sleeping better. My head's clearer. I'm getting more admin done. So yeah, I can definitely see the benefits. I guess the, the inevitable question there is how much do you normally drink that still drinking quite a lot feels amazing, like a total cleanse and detox. Just drinking a normal amount for you is like is like going to a wellness retreat and drinking green juices, just drinking still quite a lot of wine. But I know, not- I, I, by, by limiting myself to drinking just one bottle a night on two nights a week, I feel transformed. <laughs> <laughs> that is ridiculous. But what is impressive is how you do so much work. I mean, you can go out, go out and be hammered at like 3 a.m. because I've been there. And then the next day, I'm basically useless till the afternoon. But you're up at like like 8 or something, cranking out articles and meet, meeting government people and putting through <laughs> bills and stuff. How, is that just genetic luck? I think it's just genetic luck, yeah. I, I, I had a conversation at one of these dinners that I, I fell off the wagon at. Um, uh, a, a, a well-known historian took me to one side and said he'd read my piece in the spectator and he interpreted it as you know not um an article about how to cut down in your drinking but how to combine drinking with doing a lot of work and he told me his secret which is he gets up at 4 30 a.m every day does a serious amount of work does does serious work for six hours then takes a break and does an hour's worth of admin then has a nice lunch might have a glass of wine with lunch and then has a nap after lunch and then gets up again, does another couple of hours work and then goes out for the evening and drinks like a normal person, you know, several glasses of wine, gets home, tries to get to bed before midnight, rinse and repeat. And you know, that, that, that to me was absolutely extraordinary. He said the nap means that you divide what you turn one day into two. So he effectively kind of, 
he does two days work in one by bisecting it with this nap every day. He said, that's the secret. Um, but, it, but it would take just me. And I mean, that is, that is a level of willpower and self-discipline. I simply don't possess to get up every day at 4.30 AM and do six hours work. And then at 10.30, think about doing the admin. I mean, I, my work starts with the admin usually anyway. So that was impressive. That's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, that is, I've heard people say that I've even heard people like divide their day into four and they get like four days and stuff. But that is amazing. And that is like Churchillian, isn't it? With the naps and the extra yeah. day. Yeah. My problem, I mean, I've often, I've sometimes gone through phases of getting up at like 5 a.m. as an experiment. But basically, I can't do it now because I work. I get back at 1 a.m. from work. And then I just tend to stay up till honestly all night. I've just purely, I've just written an article about this on my Substack. I'm an insomniac. But it's just my, but the good thing about it is I get to follow American politics live, which we'll get into in a minute, maybe. That's the yeah. only positive. But yeah, other than that, it's a nightmare. Um, but let's kick off then with the first story, which I thought would do the Tories facing 1997-style wipeout the Telegraph have. And they said it's the uh, most extensive election poll in five years predicts the party will retain just 169 seats, 11 cabinet ministers forecast to be ousted in biggest collapse since 1906. So Keir Starmer's Labour, I, I, I'm annoyed that I said sir there, I never say sir. Keir Starmer's Labour would win landslide majority of 120 with 385 MPs. Now this poll came from... Lord Frost, our friend Lord Frost, regular listener, who I thought about texting about this, but then I didn't because I thought it might be tricky for him to answer. But he did this. He sort of commissioned this poll as far as I can see. And people were saying, why did he release it now? Was it to do with influencing the Rwanda vote? That is possible. Is he just trying to give the Tories a kick up the backside? I don't know. You'll be able to shed more light on this perhaps, Toby. But yes, he, he commissioned this devastating YouGov poll with proper data and MRP, he says, this YouGov MRP is robust to much of this. So it, it takes into account all sorts of things. And uh, it's, it, it's, it's constituency level data, he says. These MRP polls have huge samples and give us detailed constituency level data. And it's basically incredibly bad. And it, and it doesn't even factor reform. But if you factor in Nigel Farage coming back to reform, it's even worse. So can Rishi survive? And can the Tories not even survive, but avoid a landslide defeat. Yeah. So um, I think that um, uh, David Frost certainly had a role um, in this uh, in this poll, but um, uh, he didn't technically commission it. It was commissioned okay. by a group called um, uh, Conservative. Oh, I had it up in my screen. Oh, it's Conservative ago. Britain Alliance or something, isn't Conservative it? Conservative Britain You're, Alliance. Yes, they, I just they, 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 but no, one, no one's ever heard of this group. Um, so it looks like a group that's um, sprung up um, uh, fairly recently. And David Frost um, uh, produced an analysis of the poll and wrote an accompanying piece uh, for The Telegraph. And according to a piece by Andrew Pierce in yesterday's Daily Mail, um, David Frost also at one stage was fundraising to fund this poll. The poll cost about £70,000. So the question you ask is the right one, which is, well, why have they commissioned this poll? Um, uh, and why have they published it now? And the answer appears to be um, that whoever is behind it um, want to, um, uh, well, uh, the, the, the kind of um, more charitable interpretation is that they just want Rishis to stiffen his backbone over the Rwanda bill and accept these amendments that have been proposed 
by people who don't think it goes far enough and it contains too many loopholes, which could be taken advantage of by human rights lawyers. And so they're, they're, they want to increase pressure on Rishi to accept these amendments uh, by making it clear that the Tories are on course for um, a landmark defeat unless they get tough on immigration. The less charitable interpretation is that actually the people behind this poll um, want Rishi to go and want to trigger another uh, leadership election because they don't want Rishi to lead the party into the next general election. And as the poll suggests, if he does, it'll be a charge of the light brigade style wipeout. Um, And uh, I I think I incline towards the less charitable interpretation. I think this is part of the kind of uh, plot to to, to unseat, to dethrone Rishi. And of course, the reason for publishing the poll this week is because this week is crunch week for Rishi. Uh, Today, the um, amendments that have been proposed to the Rwanda bill by people on the right of the party are being debated. Um, the, the bill is at the the bill is at the committee stage when amendments are debated, um, and uh, if those amendments are rejected uh, by the close of play tomorrow, then there will be a vote, a third reading on the Rwanda bill, and the likelihood is not a race. I mean, not certain, but anyway, probable. I think that if the amendments are rejected, then the Rwanda bill will be defeated at the third reading. And then Rishi um, uh, faces, a, faces a dilemma. Does he hold an election? Uh, uh, does he turn it into a confidence vote? So if he is defeated, it automatically triggers an election. Um, uh, does he not do that, but hold an election anyway, if the third reading is defeated? Or if it's defeated, does he resign? Or does he resign on the eve of the third reading because he knows it'll be defeated? Anything could happen in the next uh, 48 hours, um, uh, maybe even less than that. Uh, I think in all probability, some amended version of some of the amendments will be accepted. And that means the crunch vote, the third reading of the Rwanda bill will then be postponed until next week. So that'll give Rishi an opportunity to shore up a bit of support. Um, uh, But um, it looks like it looks to me as though whether this current plot succeeds or not, Rishi's confidence in Rishi is is ebbing away pretty quickly. He's losing his authority. It's that moment you can you can see that moment approaching. Usually, when prime minister's authority begins to ebb away, it happens quickly, then suddenly. Um, and sorry, it, it happens like slow, slowly, then suddenly, like going bankrupt. Yeah, um, and. Uh, you can f- it feels to me as though that's beginning to happen and it's not going to be Rishi leading the party into the next general election. Interesting. And we can talk about who it would be. But just, I was actually right with Conservative Britain Alliance. I'm quite impressed with my memory there. The uh, Independent phrases it as a group of Tory donors who have called themselves Conservative Britain Alliance led by Lord Frost. So it does say they're led by him. I don't know exactly how that works, but certainly he's involved and it's not great. So are you saying Kemi then and they try and get her in with enough time for a November-ish election. Yeah, well, interestingly, one of the um, things this poll predicts is that um, various Tory grandees currently in the cabinet are going to lose their seats. I think it was 12 in total, and they included Jeremy Hunt and Penny Mordaunt, two potential leadership contenders. Um, And maybe the subliminal, not so subliminal message there is 
there's really little point in voting for either of them because they may not even be in Parliament um, after the next general election. Um, uh, but um, it looks as though Kemi, uh, if there is a plot, um, it looks as though their candidate is Kemi. And interestingly, a story broke at the same time that this poll was published saying Kemi uh, thinks that the Rwanda bill needs to be amended. And of course, two deputy chairs of the Conservative Party have also declared they're going to back the amendments, um, Brendan Clark-Smith and uh, Lee Anderson. Um, uh, So when cabinet ministers and deputy chairs of the party are, you know, joining the conspirators, um, if that's what it is, uh, it looks like, you know, um, time will shortly be up for for Rishi. Uh, But yeah, I think think Kemi will be pitched um, if he does resign and there is a leadership election as a unity candidate. Um, and uh, I think there'll be strong pressure on all the other people who fancy their chances, like Penny Mordaunt, um, to just not contest the leadership. So it's a coronation, not a contest, um, because it looks as though even if someone contested it, um, Kemi would at the very least be in the final two and she would win a ballot of the members, uh, particularly if she was up against um someone like Jeremy Hunt. Um, so I think uh, the hope the conspirators are harbouring, if it's a conspiracy, um, is that um, Rishi will resign um, and Kemi will then be um, uh, appointed in his place um, uh, uh, uncontested. Well, yeah. So she, one of the things Kemi wanted was she was talking about she wanted to limit the individual appeals to de- deportations, didn't she? That, that, that's what it was. And Lee Anderson agreed with her. You mm. wouldn't be able to individually appeal your deportation. That's mm. what I think it was. Someone else, could, someone can write in and tell me I've got to put it slightly wrong in some way, but I think that's correct. And um, and that's what the sort of right of the party was going for. So that's fascinating. I mean, we do talk about it a lot, but, but can reform make a, a massive difference? I mean, one part that struck me of Lord Frost's article was when he said uh, that this doesn't factor in a further boost for Reform UK. Just imagine if Nigel Farage delivered on his hints and came back to politics. Two or three extra points for reform, a bit more tactical voting, and this might start to look like an extinction event. So Mm. he's saying it could obliterate the Tories forever. I mean, is Richard Tice right? Can reform become the the new Tories, or is is that just unrealistic in our system? And is it still going to have to be about reforming the Tory party and getting someone like Kemi in? Well, um, uh, let's suppose Rishi clings on um, or calls a snap election um, and the Conservatives are wiped out and reform does reasonably well but probably doesn't win any seats, um, but, but does well because uh, in part because Nigel has kind of come back to lead the party in the general election campaign. Um I'm not sure that would mean reform replacing the Conservative Party. I imagine that, um, you know, in those circumstances, the rump of the Parliamentary Conservative Party would, um, or the rump that will be the post-election Parliamentary Conservative Party will will regroup, elect a leader, and, um, and I would have thought would quite quickly start um, picking up... Um, uh, support um, from people unhappy with uh, with Labour. But one, one concern, I think, is that um, if Labour wins the majority, 
projected by this particular poll, and that's assuming Rishi doesn't go and he leads the party into the election whenever it is, um, then it su- it would be such a large majority, like a, a bigger majority even than that won by Tony Blair, I think, in 1997, uh, that it's inconceivable that it wouldn't be at the very least a two-term Labour government. So the message message of the poll is if we don't replace Rishi, um, uh, then uh, we'll be looking at at least 10 years in the political wilderness. Unless Starmer's just so bad, I know that's all the predictions, it would be two terms. Unless Starmer's just so bad that he only gets one term. But yeah, it's certainly going to be a long time in the wilderness if they even survive. It is hard to imagine the Tories falling apart because they've been the most successful, what, the most successful political party in Western Europe or something? Yeah. I mean, something like that. So, I think, yeah, rumours of their death have been greatly exaggerated. I think, um, yeah, it's very unlikely that, that, that the Tory body would, you know, actually become extinct. I suppose it's possible it might it might split into different factions, like the, um, you know, the Conservative Party in Canada did. Um, that's possible. There might be a kind of rival Conservative Party set up, which then eclipsed the Conservative Party. But with our electoral system, it's very obviously very difficult for challenger parties to succeed, as we've discussed many times before. And in this poll, the Tories would lose 196 seats versus 178 in 97. And they're saying it's only slightly smaller than Blair's majority because the SNP would still oh, hold 20-odd yeah. seats that okay. were Labour in 97. So, okay. But there are all sorts of different projections in this, but it's definitely worth reading the article. Um, it's certainly not good for the Tories. I can't actually picture Rishi going for some reason, but then again, I could be wrong because Boris suddenly went went quite suddenly. That was quite shocking. Obviously, Partygate rumbled on, but then there was Chris Pincher. And he went quite suddenly and did that fairly bitter speech outside the Commons and them as the breaks and all that. And it, it was very sudden. So maybe it can happen. Some reason I can't picture it, maybe just because they've had so much turmoil already. But I also can't picture them surviving... He's not going to survive after the election anyway. So it's almost, it's not academic, but it's not good for Rishi either way, is it? He goes now or he goes. I mean, and you know, and it's possible that um, none of the amendments are accepted. Um, There is, you know, the third reading of the Rwanda bill takes place tomorrow and it's narrowly won by the government. So the rebellion fails, the coup fails. But even in that scenario, the conspirators will then start sending letters to the 1920-22 committee. Um, uh, and if if the 22 receives enough letters, then that automatically triggers a leadership election. So Rishi's not out of the woods, even if the third reading of the Rwanda bill passes tomorrow night, which is why I say it feels as though, you know, um, his authority is ebbing away. And it to me, it now looks unlikely that he'll he'll lead the party into the next general election. He was just kind of the wrong person at the wrong time. I mean, he could have been okay in a, in a more stable time, but we haven't had such a time for ages. I mean, Dominic Cummings has said politicians just want to go back to the time uh, post-Berlin Wall, pre-9-11. He says they all just want to go back to that time, and all their policies are about trying to get back to that time. But we're not in that time. We're in a time of change and turmoil. And so he was the wrong guy for that that moment. We need someone much bolder. And he's more managerial. And and that's why it's interesting that uh, Frost says that complacency has been the tone in his piece. And he says that might sound strange, but it's been it's been all about complacency with people saying, well, people don't like Starmer and it's not as bad as you think. And people w- might stay home, but they won't vote Labour and all these kind of theories. But really, they're sort of sleepwalking into oblivion. 
that's quite a good phrase, sleepwalking into oblivion yeah. of the Rishi Sunak story. I imagine the kind of the spin that Team Rishi will put on it if if he does go is that um, uh, the Conservative Party's just become unmanageable, the Parliamentary Conservative Party, that uh, it, it doesn't matter how gifted a leader you are, it really wouldn't have mattered, um, you know, had he had he had he been bolder, you know, and embraced um, a more red-blooded policy on the small boats, um, had he abandoned net zero, um, uh, then he would have lost the right of his party. One nation, yeah, uh, yeah um, and would have faced you know a succession of rebellions on that side of the the aisle. Um, so um, the the team Rishi spin will be. The Tory party has just become unmanageable, um, and uh, no one—it's no one can herd these cats. That'll be the line, I think. Yeah, and there is something in that when you've got the five families, you've got the One Nation, then you've got various different conservative factions, some of whom are more Thatcherite, some of whom are more uh, Natcon, whatever you want to call it. It's—it's virtually—it is virtually impossible to be fair to him. I mean, that wouldn't be completely made up, would it? No, it, it no. is multiple parties. In our system, it has to be this broad church. Then it gets so mm. broad that it can't even survive anymore. And that's basically where we are, isn't it? Potentially, anyway. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think, I think, um, I think that uh, Kemi would have um, uh, fewer, fewer issues than um, Rishi because... Um, the, the parliamentary party would recognise that it really is drinking in the last chance saloon under Kemi. There isn't going to be another leadership election between her winning the next one and the general election. Um, so uh, I think they would put on a show of unity. And also she'd have, she'd have um, if, she, if she was elected unopposed, um, you know, Rishi's, Rishi's, Rishi's authority has always been... Um, uh, slightly weak from the get-go because he lost the actual contest with Liz. Um, uh, so, you know, in, in in the only thing approaching a democratic election uh, within the Conservative Party, he lost it to Liz. And it was only after she was overthrown by conspirators seemingly in league with him that he then replaced her. Um, so, um, and I think that, um, I think Kemi would have a bit more legitimacy because you wouldn't have had, you know, um, a failed runoff kind of behind her with someone who was then deposed. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I, yeah, as I say, I think I think that, I think the party would recognise it has to unite behind her, and she's got kind of, you know, she's got a bit more natural authority, natural gravitas, a bit more bottom than him. I mean, part of his part of his problem is he's not a very, he's not a very good communicator, is he? He's not great at kind of connecting with the public. Um, he always seems a bit, you know, as though he's trying a little bit too hard and you're not really seeing the real Rishi. You're seeing this kind of, you know, charming kind of salesman. Um, but that's not what he's really like, you know, behind closed doors. There's something a little bit inauthentic and a bit too, he's a bit too cheerful and positive and high energy in a slightly unconvincing way. Uh, it's all, you know, it just feels like a kind of, slightly second rate political act whereas she seems much more real much more relatable um what you see is what you get she's got that kind of uh, she's got that kind of stamp of authenticity which she's never had yeah they're both very smart but like yes sunak has a kind of charisma deficit he would have been more suited as i've said before this is my layman take but he would have been more suited to go with cummings you know when you had these meetings with cummings 
why not go with a radical kind of Cummings agenda, run the country like a CEO, look, talk about efficiency, reform the civil service, scrap the ECHR, sort out that nuclear missiles thing, do all these things, you know, sort out immigration in a very tough way. Why not be the kind of managerial CEO candidate, the sort of non-ideological, because that suits Rishi. Mm. And soon, and Cummings said he's harder working than most politicians, he's smarter than most politicians. But as he pointed out, he doesn't have a story. He doesn't have an identity. He, he never, he's never nailed the campaigning sort of the, the, that the part you need to connect to voters. As we've been proved, he's not ele- been elected by the country or the members. He's stuck, and he's now he's and he's reverted to sort of playing the Whitehall game. I think his only chance was a kind of radical mm. Cummings-esque agenda. Person, but I think it, yeah. But I think it would have been very difficult, as we've discussed, for him to, you know, um, unite the parliamentary party behind that radical, properly conservative agenda. I think it'll be easier for Kemi to do that after she's won an election on that basis. I mean, maybe she'll, you know, um, call an election straight away if she succeeds him. It'll be a single issue election on the issue of whether we stay in or come out of the ECHR because as long as we remain in, there's not much we can do about the small boats. Uh, Or she'll make it... uh, you know, um, uh, an election about a cluster of issues. Um, but once she's, if she, if she, if she manages to uh, actually win a majority in in extremely difficult circumstances, in the teeth of, you know, um, uh, uh, all 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 the predictions, um, like Major did in in ninety two, um, then then she'd have real authority. If she can fight an election on that basis, she would then be able to appeal to the manifesto and say, "Look, we've been elected." to enact this radical right-wing agenda. Um, and uh, and that would, I think, uh, help us silence the kind of dissenting elements in the parliamentary party. It, Rishi can't point to a manifesto. The manifesto in 2019 has long since ceased to mean very much because there have been, you know, two changes of prime minister since Boris won that election. So, but but with, with that mandate, I think uh, maybe Kemi could, you know, uh, bring the parliamentary party get that get them behind her united behind this radical agenda yeah just to be clear though i think those are two different agendas i think the dominic cummings agenda is a non-ideological um efficiency agenda that just tries to fix big problems people like the nhs okay let's reform the nhs but keep it and put more money into it people are worried about immigration let's fix that i see that as a different agenda from and it's you know that's why people are scared of Cummings. He doesn't believe in the political center ground. He doesn't really believe thinks he doesn't believe in things like that. He just thinks people have a radical mix of views. For example, people are pro NHS, but they're also pro death penalty in many for certain types of crimes. So it's like he's he's more about sort of you could call it a radical populism. I sort of see it as like an efficient populism or something. You know, Curtis Yarvin has spoken about we should just have a a CEO type figure, an absolute monarch, but he really means a CEO type figure running the country. I see that as the Cummings agenda. I haven't read enough of his stuff to understand it all. There's just acres of stuff about Bismarck that I don't understand. But that's my broad understanding. The Kemi agenda I see as different. That that I see as the more straightforward conservative agenda we might want. But do the public want it is the big question. You know, you can see how the party could win. Danny Kruger, Miriam Cates and others. And you can see how that's building momentum in the party. The question is, as much as I want that, do the does the nation want that? Or do they still want this wet one nation thing? I don't know. We'll find out, I yeah. guess. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think there does seem to be a real public appetite for doing more about the small boats and protecting our borders, and um, 
I also think that uh, there seems to be a kind of burgeoning opposition to net zero, particularly as people realise the cost. Um, so I think there could be, you could win a mandate um, to address both of those issues in a way which would, you know, um, uh, please people like Danny Kruger and Miriam Cates. Uh, um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, the, 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 the uh, whether, 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 um, I think, you know, I guess you're right. There are, there was a really interesting piece by NS Lyons actually, um, uh, on his Substack this week in which he talked about, um, what he called, um, uh, right wing progressivism, um, uh, which he associates with people like Curtis Yarvin, uh, in which you, you know, the object of government should be to maximize growth. And as you say, they, they, they think that um, that's sort of ideologically uncontentious. They're anti-woke, but only because anti-woke kind of hurts the bottom line. Um, uh, they think the, you know, the, 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 the head of state should, 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 should see his job or her job as, as maximizing GDP, in, increasing growth. Woke hurts the bottom line. So they're anti-woke. Yeah, yeah. But they're not anti-woke yeah. for more fundamental ideological reasons. And no, You just said anti-work hurts the bottom line. I got it now. Yeah, um, but Ellis uh, uh, Lyons makes the point that this isn't really a conservative um, position because it contains within it a kind of progressive vision, the view that things that things are always going to get better, um, a kind of uh, uh, an unwillingness to acknowledge that things were actually better in the past and there are aspects of our past which are worth preserving. Um, so he said it was really just, it, it's a sort of way of of, of grafting onto um, uh, kind of right-wing libertarianism, what is essentially a progressive agenda. Um, so mm. uh, yeah, he, 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 was, he was opposed to it as a kind of proper conservative. There are so many visions of, of conservatism. You've then got Bannon's traditionalism, Steve Bannon, where he believes in the fourth turning and believes that there are four cycles to history, which is radically different from linear progression, obviously, because he believes sometimes we're in a dark phase I think I've said it before, but there's an amusing bit from his book where Jared Kushner is sort of worrying about should we bomb Syria or something, and Bannon's going, "Oh yeah, but sometimes we may as well because we're in a we're in like a dark phase or something." Like he's like an accelerationist, like let's just let this bit get as bad as possible because the good bit's coming around the corner. <laughs> because he's got this kind of zany fourth turning traditionalism, and people were quite sort of some people were a bit worried that how close he was to the seat of power with some of these uh, idiosyncratic, let's say, esoteric views. So there's so many different visions of conservatism. Go on. I guess. I guess. One 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 question is: um, there is a kind of sense of kind of um, apocalyptic, millenarian kind of panic, almost kind of hanging over Britain and maybe politics internationally. You know that um, that the the capitalist model um, is no longer capable of producing perpetual growth, um, that uh, the rules-based world order is collapsing. Um, we seem closer to a third world war, what with the conflict between Israel and Gaza and the brewing conflict between China and Taiwan and the increasingly aggressive, belligerent behavior of Iran, the possibility that Putin may yet triumph in the war in Ukraine and then begin to menace um, other other states in the Baltic. 
Um, so there's a kind of general sense of kind of panic that things are falling apart, that Western civilization, the values we live by, our way of life has never been more fragile, never been at greater risk. And maybe maybe everyone always exaggerates, you know, um, exactly, you know, uh, the extent of the jeopardy uh, we're in. Um, but but the more that feeling kind of um, grows, um, and the more that kind of uh, that that kind of narrative is embedded, so the political solutions that seem to be available to us, um, such as you know Keir Starmer reviving kind of Blairite social democracy. Or by contrast, in various European countries like France, some kind of populist alternative to kind of techno-managerialism. They don't seem like particularly good solutions that are going to address these problems. Um, so that, to me, feels like a reason for um, developing a kind of properly thought through, um, properly conservative government agenda. Uh, but maybe I'm being naive if I think we could have a kind of, you know, Thatcherism 2.0 that could kind of um, reverse Britain's decline, inject us with a kind of new sense of national purpose and economic confidence. Um, maybe that too is an illusion. And um, no one really has got a solution for what feels like the inevitable coming collapse of our civilization. What do you think? How optimistic are you? You know me, I'm always optimistic. I think, um, well, I think we could have that figure. For Thatcher 2.0, who is that if not Nigel Farage? I mean, that's virtually a description of him. I, my, my theory is, Starmer, as you know, Starmer gets in, balls up the country, then Farage comes through. I say as leader of the Conservatives, maybe it's as reform and he just somehow destroys the Conservatives via reform. We're behind Europe. I don't see it going anywhere else. I think immigration is such a big issue We've had more excessive immigration than virtually anyone. Europe has hurt builders. It has, you know, the toughening of policy on immigration in France, Denmark, Sweden. We have the AFD in Germany. I know they're trying to stop them by undemocratic means, but that's where it's going in Europe. I see us as behind that curve, but we will get there. But we'll get there in an English way that'll have a, a variation. But maybe that is something like Farage, because Farage is one of these figures. He sort of combines patriotism and populism and nationalism with Thatcherist that's right economics so that can be done i don't really see why not whether it will be whether it's a viable solution when capitalism you're saying is under threat i don't know but well i guess i guess maybe that is well the reason the reason that i'm slightly skeptical about whether the various populist parties which look as though and candidates which look as though they will do well in many elections this year. The reason I'm skeptical about whether they can address these long-term problems and reverse the decline of the West is that to a great extent, they're just reactionary, aren't they? They're just, um, they're just kind of, they're a kind of um, an explosion of rage in the face of the complacency and arrogance of, you know, the Davos class. Um, and uh, they don't really have any well thought through, well worked out policy solutions to these problems. I mean, one of the things which makes Dominic Cummings quite impressive, in spite of all his shortcomings, is that he does appear to have done some proper intellectual labour and devise what he thinks is a kind of set of policies which will set Britain back on the right foot, including 
civil service reform. Um, uh, but other populist parties, I mean, I like Nigel Farage. I like Richard Tice. If Rishi remains the leader of the Conservative Party going to the election, I'll probably vote reform. But beyond, you know, coming out of the ECHR and properly defending our borders, do they really have any policies? What are their policies? I'm not sure I know what they are. Do they have an education policy? Do they have a policy to get people back into work? Um, how are they going to address the fact that um, the number of people on disability benefit is mushrooming um, and ordinary Britons seem less and less inclined to work? What are they going to do about our below replacement birth rate? What are they going to do about uh. the overwhelmed NHS? Are they really going to reform the NHS? They're not very keen on net zero. Great. Maybe they'd repeal the Net Zero Act. But um, beyond that, I'm not sure that they have a kind of a set of policies which could really address these problems or that they've really had a chance to think that through or come up with a kind of proper program for government. It would be very entertaining, a lot of fun, but but would it solve yeah. our problems? <laughs> well, I did interview Richard Tice on my podcast, The Current Thing, and he did have a lot of answers for those questions. They did have a policy about NHS and wages. I don't exactly recall it. They had a progressive tax policy on the income tax threshold that was pretty good. And, they, and they've and they now released a series of very effective tweets showing just how massive immigration has been, You know how absurdly huge the numbers have been in the last year compared to our entire history. But you are right that, and I think we'd have to be fair to Rich and say, well, you've got to go through his manifesto. But I do think you have a point. When I talk about Farage, I am sort of falling perhaps for the um, sort of saviour syndrome, the kind of Javier Millet, although he has done some good stuff himself, the sort of Trump, the charismatic, what's it called? There's a a term for it, a charismatic something, charismatic authority. I think it comes from Max Weber from memory, something like that. It's Mm. the idea of you just have one charismatic leader and to kind of solve everything, but it's a kind of an illusion. And there is a danger of that. As you say, at least Cummings has thought these things through Trump had Bannon, who had intellectually thought everything through. The, the, his agenda was scrapped pretty quickly, as far as I can gather. He was ousted, of course. So you, you, you maybe do need that person behind you who's really thought through the policies, that nerd behind behind the charismatic person. So, yeah, what would that look like? I think that's a, that is a very legitimate question. Will it be – it can't be exactly the same as Europe's kind of right wing, and but it will be something, an English spin on that. But, yeah, we don't have it yet. You're right. And as for birth rates, that's a great question I just interviewed – Dr. Paul Morland on the current thing. We went through this in detail. I highly recommend it. That question, yeah, I said, have politicians addressed this? And he didn't, basically not really. They haven't addressed this. This is the concern. I mean, there's immigration, but behind that is birth rates because the reason for immigration, or one of the reasons, the only decent reason, or even you know viable reason as I see it, is, okay, it's plugging the economy, but behind that is the, the low birth rates. And that's, that's the root issue of all of it. And immigration only plugs it temporarily, is it in a kind of Ponzi scheme because then they get old, they need to be looked after and so on. And do they even fill the gaps? Are they even skilled? So, yeah, it's all about the birth rates. And no one has come up with a great idea for how we get domestic birth rates up. Nothing has really worked as far as I can see. So, But it's an open question. How do we fix that? But you're right. I'd like to hear. We're not hearing Starmer coming through and say, well, this is what I do about immigration. And then here's what I do with the birth rate. He's not even, it's not even on the map of any party, really. And this is a potential existential issue well it's it's difficult for certainly for someone like Starmer to come up with a policy because if he 
suggests that he thinks women should be having more children, then he immediately gets kind of attacked by the feminists in his party. Yeah. Um, Muslim uh, base would like him. Yeah. Uh, hasn't Orban... Not, not if he said only uh, white, white children, <laughs> at least the Muslim. Can you imagine Starver coming out with anything? He can, I mean, he's so careful. He doesn't say anything. He just tries to not drop the Ming vase. He can't answer anything. Imagine him suddenly coming out with a bold policy on birth rates and how to get them up. I mean, that's just so inconceivable. No, they're, they're, it's seemingly the only really bold policy agenda unveiled by Keir Starmer and his top team so far is to essentially undo all the conservative education reforms, which is the one reform I think you can you can say uh, over the past 13, 14 years of um, conservative and coalition government that's been an unqualified success. I mean, the only thing they've really got right is education reform. You know, um, uh, England and Wales, England in particular, England rather, not England and Wales, England is now um, climbing the international league tables. Um, uh, it's it's it, The policies enacted by Michael Gove and his successors and by ministers like Nick Gibb in the education department um, have been really successful. And, you know, a return to more traditional teaching methods, um, an emphasis on um, uh, uh, rigorous discipline, um, the free schools policy, academization. I mean, they haven't all been unqualified successes, but broadly speaking, the education system we have now is much, much better than it was pre-2010. Um, uh, and those are the only, the only policies, as far as we know, that Labour Party have been absolutely explicit about. So we're going to undo all the good that the Conservatives have done in education. Uh, so he wants to, you know, scrap GCSEs. Um, he wants to reverse the reforms to teacher training. He's going to rewrite the national curriculum. He wants much more of an emphasis on preparing children for work. So teaching them skills rather than knowledge. I mean, all the kind of nonsense, the progressive romantic nonsense that was um that that ruled the roost pre-2010 that's all going to come back um uh via labor if starmer wins the next election it's it's so depressing i was very involved in the education reform movement for several years and um to think that it's all that good work is going to be undone is deeply demoralizing yeah it's horrible i can imagine and um they're going to do a lot of woke stuff about misgendering children it's going to be absolutely awful the only other policy i know about is that angela rayner i don't know if she'll be allowed to do anything but she has said she would get rid of that new minimum uh what's it called minimum service on the tube where we finally got this rule where you, you, the tube has to have a certain minimum service they can't totally strike but immediately Khan didn't invoke it and angela rayner says she'd scrap it entirely so that's the new policy i know about and that's another awful idea it's going to be so bad. People, the people, but if they, hey, look at the look at the Lord Frost poll to go full circle on this story, which we've done quite a long time on. They, this is what people are going to vote for. So they're going to get what they ask for. They're going to get a horrible, horrible Labour government. They'll be just voting to punish the Tories, though, won't they? They won't actually be voting for Labour's manifesto. Although Labour will will obviously claim it's a massive public endorsement for their manifesto and go about enacting all these dreadful policies, claiming a mandate. Well, your mum had an old phrase about it, don't cut off your nose to spite your face, and that still holds today. Don't vote Labour just to annoy the Tories. The Tories are a disaster, but you can't vote Labour. But let's see. All right, well, we did a lot on that story. Now let's go and do an occasional section we like to do, 
which is across the pond. Because, Toby, we have a massive across the pond story today, which is that Trump has won big, bigly in the Iowa caucus. He's won 51% of the vote and gained 20 delegates. And I don't pretend to understand the delegates thing, but he got 56,260 votes. Ron DeSantis, remember him, got 23,420, only 21.2%. Nikki Haley, 21,085, 19.1%. And uh, Vivek got 8,449 votes. He got 7.7%. So, and he then dropped out and gave his endorsement to Trump. And it was all very interesting. I mean, most people are saying now, Ron DeSantis, done. Haley's done, but she hasn't realized it. She claimed it showed that it was officially a two-horse race, even though she didn't even do as well as DeSantis, which is which was called a delusional bitch <laughs> so, by, by some people. So, um, I mean, Vivek played it smart. He, he, he burst onto the scene. He said all these bold things. Very smart, great speaker, really interesting. Trump insulted him just before, didn't respond to that. Then drops out, backs Trump, says, we've got to be, have unity, you know, do the right thing. Never outshine the master, 48 Laws of Power, rule number one. Never outshine the master, and he didn't outshine Trump. Ron DeSantis, bit of a mistake, tried to outshine the master, went too soon, did well in Florida, thought he was ready. He wasn't. I called it, hate to say, we discussed it at length on previous podcasts. I remain Team Trump. You were Team DeSantis because you're worried about Trump's uncouth. I don't say put words in your mouth what the reasons were. I was Team Trump. And he's and you know he's absolutely storming. And I was Team Trump instinctively because I knew that he just Trump's just a force of nature. And I'd also followed it very closely. And people like Roger Stone, I was quite influenced by, who said, "Look, Ron DeSantis doesn't like people. He's an introvert." I mean, hey, I can't fault him for either of those. It would be hypocritical. But you're up against Trump. I see it as a kind of solid Everton midfielder up against Maradona. You're up against one of the most charismatic, famous people of all time in Donald Trump. So it's very hard to beat him. So he absolutely spanked everyone. And just so the, re- the uh, listener has some context, people were talking about 40%. A writer for Vox said, if Trump underperforms polls, getting around 40% or lower, or having another contender come surprisingly close, he will be deemed a loser of Iowa, even though he won. But he didn't. He got 51%. And the last time that was done was Bob Dole, I believe, in 1988. And so it's just an absolute crushing victory for Trump. And uh, yeah, Bob Dole, 12-point margin of victory in Iowa from 1988. He smashed past that as well. So massive win for Trump. I don't fully claim to understand all the ins and outs of their system. But anyway, he said some funny quotes, which maybe I'll get into later. But first, Toby, any take on all of that? Um, Well, Bob Dole did go on to lose um, uh, (laughs) that presidential election. There is that. Um, yeah, it does look as though um, it's all over um, for the uh, challenger candidates, doesn't it? Um, I think if Nikki Haley um, manages to uh, pull off a, an extraordinary surprise um, in New Hampshire next week, um, then uh, it might then become a two-horse race. But as you say, it does feel a bit delusional to claim that now, given that she actually came third, um, although there wasn't much there wasn't much distance between. Uh, her, well, there wasn't much gap, much much of a gap between her and DeSantis. Um, yeah, it does look like um, Trump is going to be the Republican nominee, um, uh, and 
I guess, you know, my reasons for um, uh, not being as enthusiastic about Trump as you are that um, he's just, I find it hard to take him seriously as a politician. Um, And uh, I worry that um, if he is America's next president, it'll just kind of just be another nail in the coffin of Western civilization. Uh, you know, that that is the kind of bully pulpit of the free world. The president of the United States is supposed to possess some dignity and moral authority. Um, he is supposed to be, you know, the leader for all of us who believe in Western values. Um, and uh, I, I'm not sure he has any of that moral authority um he he just seems to be a pretty reprehensible dishonest um unpleasant character um and uh it may be that the reason his first administration wasn't as disastrous as the democrats were predicting is because there was a kind of infrastructure in place there were many people uh, in the white house and in you know, the various departments of state um, that were still competent and able to run the country, even though they had this kind of crazy person in the White House. Um, but but maybe that won't be true second time around. Maybe, you know, a lot of them will leave. Um, uh, uh, and I guess the one of the one of the problems with with Trump is partly that he is such a partisan figure. Yes, he commands the um, loyalty the enthusiastic um, affection of, you know, maybe 50% of the population, but the other 50% really detest him. Um, And it's a bit like the problem I was worried would face Britain after the success of of Brexit and the EU referendum, um, which is that all the people that we need on side to make a success of Brexit are all the people that voted for Remain. And are they just going to flounce off or kind of sit on their hands or work to rule um, and make sure that um, post-Brexit Britain isn't a success uh, because they were so bitterly opposed to Brexit. Um, And that sort of has happened up to a point. You know, that's the reason the Home Office haven't got to grips in part. One of the reasons the Home Office hasn't got to grip with the small grips with the small boats crisis, because they're all Remainers and they're all pro-immigration. So you sort of worry that um, if such a partisan figure um, does become president, he's not going to unite the country. He's not going to get the people on side, you need on side to make a success of his administration. Um, and, you know, he's he's a bit of an isolationist when it comes to Europe and NATO. And if we're going to be menaced by, you know, a triumphant Putin having kind of defeated Ukraine, who will be able to call on for support? You know, the EU? I don't think so. Uh, we'll be very vulnerable. And, you um, We've discussed before, you know, both the benefits and the costs of having someone like Trump in the White House if, you know, with China uh, seemingly, you know, determined to invade Taiwan. On the one hand, the fact that he's capable of launching a kind of, you know, first strike with a nuclear missile will deter the Chinese. But on the other hand, if they're not deterred by that, then it's more likely we would be plunged into nuclear war. Um, 
so I don't know. I think I think uh, you know I can see why you like Trump, and um, I don't I don't buy into many of the kind of uh, you know deranged criticisms of Trump, and I think it'll be hugely entertaining to see all the kind of you know um, liberals crying their eyes out um, on election night. Um, I worry that you know from the point of view of the long term health, the future of Western civilization, it'll just be you know, um, another nail in the coffin. Well, I'm always surprised you go with the foreign policy argument or the isolationist argument, to use your word there, because that's where the argument's so weak against Trump, because the empirical evidence, as I always say, is that the world was much safer under Trump. And since Biden, chaos in Afghanistan, the disastrous withdrawal, Ukraine-Russia war, because Putin perhaps sees the US is weak, one argument, and the chaos in the Middle East. Now we've got Yemen, I don't know if that's related, but certainly it's a much more dangerous world since Biden's come in. Okay, you can question the causation if you want, but you certainly can't question the uh, the outcome. Trump made things safer. He was tougher and people respected it more. I mean, as for the Brexit point and, and uh, sort of riling people, I see that as the kind of domestic abuse victim argument. I see it as the Churchill darkest hour. You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. I mean, these... The left, we can't give in to, especially the radical left that's taken over the Biden administration. These people can't be reasoned with. They're communists. You want to destroy you at all costs. So it has to be war, not necessarily actual civil war, but it has to be very tough. And we see that from Trump's indictments, the way they're trying to put him in prison. We see how rough they're prepared to play. And we've just seen Rachel Maddow um, saying they're not even going to put out footage. Which ridiculous channel is she on now? MSNBC? Mm. That she's like, we're not even going to necessarily show the speech of the uh, Republican candidate who's who's won. And didn't even, she didn't even say his name at first, which was kind of really insane. She goes, because we don't know, we don't want to put out things that aren't true. We don't like having to do this, but we're not even going to. So like, okay, you're not even going to show Trump's speech because you're censoring the, uh, the, the, the leading Republican candidate, former president. It's so disgusting and insane. That's why the Trump story is so important and so inevitable. You've tried to put this guy in prison. Now he has to win. It has to be total victory. And I know people are, some people are uncomfortable with Trump's vernacular. They're uncomfortable. They prefer DeSantis. He's more genteel. That's never bothered me because maybe from my background, we Trump seems normal given the kind of things people said in Northern playgrounds. And just on that last point, you can respond to any of that. Some of the things he said were absolutely hilarious. And he said, we're going to drill, baby, drill, which is funny on its own. <laughs> but then he also said, I had to rewrite this down and tweet it because I was watching his victory speech early in the early hours of the morning because I'm always up very late. And he said, um, so I don't I don't want to be overly rough on the president, but I have to say that he is the worst president that we've had in the history of our country. <laughs> I don't want to be overly rough on Biden, but he's the worst president we've had in the history of our country. I mean, that is just that is pure Trump. Then he told an ill-judged anecdote about um, Jimmy Carter. It was that he was at, I think he was at Jimmy Carter's wife's funeral. And he goes, and I was looking at, and he shouldn't have set it up like that with the funeral. He's like, and I was looking at Jimmy Carter thinking, he must be loving this now. Jimmy's not going to be the worst president we've ever had. And that didn't get any laughs because it's like, you've set it up talking about his wife's funeral, Trump. But anyway, classic Trump. Anyway, write a reply to any of that, Toby. Well, I think it, I think you, you articulate the case for Trump pretty well, but it feels to me like um, it's, it's, it's the case for um, electing someone that's going to punish 
you know, um, people <laughs> on the other side in the culture war, what could be more guaranteed to upset them, um, to prove them wrong, um, to make them look ridiculous for trying to prosecute him and for trying to censor him than for him to win a landslide in the presidential election. And you get a huge amount of kind of, you know, satisfaction from seeing the other side scatter and seeing the disarray, the misery he'd sow amongst the kind of libtards. Um, but that isn't, that isn't, that, that's not going to be great for the future of the country and by extension, the future of the free world. Um, you know, he just doesn't seem like, um, I mean, just, he seems, he seems a little crazy. I mean, maybe more than a little crazy. I mean, do you want a crazy person in the White House? I mean, I know Biden's, you know, got all sorts of shortcomings too. Um, maybe he is the worst president in the history of the United States. But, um, you know, that doesn't mean there isn't someone, you know, better than Trump. Um, uh, it just feels like it just feels like, you know, um, it's it's a manifestation of kind of partisan feeling in the culture war. Um, and it feels like, you know, if we're going to secure the future of America and the future of the West, we have to, at some point, transcend that and be a little bit more responsible and not put in the White House someone who is so divisive and who, as you say, may even may even stimulate some kind of civil war, whether kind of it's a cold civil war or a hot civil war. Yeah, well, the one thing I can say to that is, yes, there's an element of that. There's an element of dopamine rush for me what, what would you call it not hubris but there's an element of uh, revenge yeah fine definitely but the argument against is bannon always talked about the signal and the noise and so you have to separate the signal and the noise with trump and the people are unable to do that if they were able to do that they'd realize oh his policies weren't that radical oh he did prison reform for black people so they weren't even that conservative his policies there were some that were were more than others he put in the judges in the supreme court and so on but he wasn't that crazy. It wasn't a dictatorship. It wasn't that radical. A lot of it was quite ineffective, unfortunately. And he even, you know, did the lockdowns and the vaccines, so which was bad from my perspective. So, you know, if they could all just calm down about the persona of Trump, they'd realize it's not going to be that bad. And they've created this monster in their heads and they've made him far worse. But yeah, given that that's where we are, it is going to be a bit like you say. But who is this other candidate, Toby? You see, because they were pushing Nikki Haley. They weren't even pushing your guy, DeSantis, which maybe we could have talked about. They, meaning the system, as as this, as Vivek keeps pointing out, they want it to be a, a two-horse race between Haley and Trump, and then they want Haley, and they want to somehow knock Trump out of the race. And that's just, you could say it's a conspiracy theory, but they certainly seem to be trying that. They want Haley, who's just the most awful, someone called her Hillary in red. She's the most awful neocon establishment, deep state nonsense candidate. So imagine that. Would you have a, if it's Trump versus Nikki Haley, that's a good question, actually. Who would you take out of those two? Well, I think there's, isn't there a, a pretty, I mean, yeah, I agree. It's, Answer uh, the question. I want to be like <laughs> a, one of these BBC people. Tom um, or Haley? To be honest, I haven't really done much digging into Nikki Haley. Um, it's not an answer. Don't, don't know much about it. So I don't know whether she, I certainly still prefer DeSantis. Um, but I was going to say, you, you kind of, part of your argument for Trump is this, I think, false uh, dichotomy. It's either, you know, more of the same with the deep state, the woke libtards, uh, the internationalists, the globalists, um, the international ruling elite, the Davos class, or 
it's Trump, you know, um, uh, a radical populist kind of uh, alternative who's going to kind of uh, uh, who's going to who's going to who's going to inflict kind of uh, misery on those elites. But isn't there another? Isn't there? A, isn't there a better? Isn't there a third alternative? Which which and I agree that he doesn't seem to be in the race at the moment. Uh, uh, and and um, you know you only you have to choose between the candidates that have a chance of winning but i like to imagine that there is you know uh somewhere a politician who can combine a kind of radical conservative program for renewal um uh with a bit of moral authority a bit of dignity um you know um uh someone more like um margaret thatcher i mean she was a little bit partisan she was quite divisive she had kind of um you know, she was a bit of a culture warrior, um, but at the same time, you know, there was kind of, there was there was a kind of um, a properly thought out political philosophy there. She was she was immersed in the work of people like Frederick Hayek. Um, she knew what the Austri- Austrian school in economics was. Um, she worked closely with think tanks like the Center for Policy Studies. She had kind of policy nerds like Keith Joseph in the background. Um, She was a serious politician and that's why she was so effective and why she did bring about a period of national renewal and, you know, um, stop the rot. And it's someone like that that I yearn for and I would vote for. Um, And it feels a a a bit pessimistic to think that henceforth the choice is only going to be between these kind of populist firebrands um, and kind of um, the desiccated remnants of the kind of new world order. Can't there be an alternative? I mean, I quite like, you know, Javier Millier and uh, uh, someone a bit more like him uh, would be so much more attractive, I think, to, uh, to to Trump, more attractive than Trump. But I agree, well, there's it's not, good news not I, like that isn't in the race. Well, there's good news because I have, I have someone like that for you, but I do want to quickly address your Thatcher point. Thatcher, I, I see Thatcher more in the... Roger Scruton way that she was an instinctive conservative who, uh, and that's more her legacy or m- m- perhaps was more key to her than the Hayek stuff, which is really a crash course in um, libertarian economics that she got from various advisors. I'm not, yeah, it, it, that's become known as Thatcherism, but I, I think maybe more her inherent patriotism and sort of just strength of character was more the legacy than or, or more important, more fundamental than that stuff. But we could debate that, and you probably know more about it than me. But I know she did read Hayek and all that, but to me, I saw that as more something she sort of swatted up on last minute. But she was certainly serious. And Vivek is the guy for you, Toby. That's the guy I'm proposing for you. You just have to wait till 2028 is all. But he is everything you've just outlined there. I mean, he's incredibly smart. People talk about it, just incredibly high IQ, just taking in concepts, immediately adding them to his platform. If he thinks they're, if he hears about the truckers, for example, and their plight, He'll immediately add it and say, "Okay, that's a serious thing we've got to add." And the criticism would be, "He's just shoehorning it in as a, uh, a talking point." But you could also just say, "No, he thinks it's a morally serious point." And Mike Cernovich wrote, wrote this in a long piece about or long ex post about being on the campaign trail with Vivek. And people say Candace Owens as well. They said, "Look, this guy's the real deal." There's these ridiculous uh, smears on him, like he took money from Soros when he was younger, which was just like a scholarship when he was younger from one of the Soros's, which he wouldn't have even pieced together at the time, and no one used to know who George Soros was. So there's always conspiracies against Vivek, always fake and all this. But I think he's I think he's the real deal as much as anyone is. And he is ultra-intellectual, ultra-smart, 
ultra successful, high energy, has this genetic freak energy that the Toby Youngs have, or, although I'm sure he doesn't probably drink as a Hindu, <laughs> I doubt it, but it, he can get up and just go for hours on not much sleep. And that's just luck. We're not all of us have it. And um, apparently there's a sort of personality profile of billionaires, by the way, that they just have this insane energy. But but he's got the energy, the brains. He's kind of, and he's smart enough to back Trump now, knowing that hopefully he gets, you know, he gets the endorsement in future next time around. But you just have to wait a few years. What do you say to that? Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, Vivek is impressive. Um, he wasn't the fee. He isn't the finished article. And it's not surprising that he hasn't done better and that he's now dropped out. But yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe he will um, have another run at it um, in, you know, uh, four years time. Maybe eight years time. I agree. He's he, he's he he he's the he's the nearest thing to Javier Millier um, that uh, in American politics. And I'm sorry, he's out of the race. And your guy DeSantis. I just wanted to add one more thing on this, which I picked up on, which is that he he has millions of followers, but he only follows one person, four point six million, and he only follows one person. Do you know who it is? No. It's his wife now. His wife, yeah. Bit gay. I mean, look, it's look, it's it, the, the the word uxorious exists for a reason. Okay, I've always loved this word uxorious. I've always found it comical that there is a word for an excessive love of one's wife because you would think surely you're meant to love one's wife, but no, no, we're smart enough to have this word uxorious. But you can go overboard on loving your wife. Like it's all right that you like her, but tone it down. All right, Keep within reason so, to but only I, follow your own wife. Is a bit see, gay. That is a little bit odd, um, but um, <laughs> I don't see the word uxorious as being as necessarily being pejorative. You seem to take it for granted that it's a pejorative. It is Whereas, a pejorative, yeah. Let's I just look it up so. on Google. It, Having or showing a great or excessive fondness for one's wife. It's always I can get my English dictionary. I'm going to go and get it right now. Yeah, I'd, I've never thought of that as, a, as as an insult. I always thought of it more as a compliment. Let's go to the concise Oxford. Sorry, Toby, I don't know what, if you carried on talking while I was away. Presumably you did. Um, I just really wanted to get this right for the, the listener. I think this is a exciting key moment on the podcast is me looking up words. Feel free to say something while I'm doing that. Um, it's uh, Yes, so here we are in the concise Oxford. Greatly or excessively fond of one's wife, showing such fondness. So exactly the same. So it's the excessively that I always picked up upon. <laughs> Why mm. is it? It's a, it can't tone it down. That's that's the word. So he's only following his wife, and it is actually significant because, apart from me making a misogynist joke, because she allegedly sort of you know convinced him to run. You one one his. So did his wife, who he only follows on X, is the only person he follows, push him into running too soon? Maybe. Well, why is the there carries. an equivalent? Why is she's, she's called Casey, isn't she? Very similar. Casey DeSantis, Carrie Johnson. Are we seeing it? But I think she's um, she's she's quite conservative. She's um, and parts company with Carrie on that score. Um, but why isn't there an equivalent word, Nick, to describe excessive love of one's husband? Is it because that's just... men are awesome? <laughs> is it because? Is it because... <laughs> because no one's ever done it? No one, no woman's <laughs> ever done that. <laughs> so no, yes, but I think that's more like it's not. It's not that that no one would think to come up with that word because it's such a natural. Um, uh, feeling to have no it's because no wife has an excessive <laughs> regard for her husband we don't even need a word lads it's not going to come up all right <laughs> we haven't even found a woman that likes her husband all that much yet we're still looking for that let alone an excessive love or fondness um whereas we know men can be simps uxorious was the old-fashioned way of saying simp 
but just for your wife. You're simping for your own wife. Would you say you're uxorious, Toby? I think I am quite uxorious. Yes, yes. I think you are a little. Maybe, I didn't want maybe, to say. Maybe that's why I don't. Your think wife is very impressive. She's a. She's a. I can. I can see why you would be, but she's a very impressive person. But you know, tone it down a little. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not right. sure. I'm not sure being excessively fond of his wife is what uh, did for Ron DeSantis. I don't think the American Republican voters have penalised him for that. Um, I think that's just uh, coincidental. Well, no, but she forced him to run too soon. He wasn't ready. He got carried away. He's like, I won Florida. And he balls it up because he just didn't have what it takes. And by the way, I'll say one further note. If your wife's Melania, it's okay to have an excessive love for Melania. <laughs> that's just my personal view because she is basically perfect. Um, you, it's, it's possible he well, might still pick DeSantis, isn't it, as his running mate? Possible. It seems unlikely, doesn't it? I mean, I think you'll go with Vivek at this point. Well, Vivek was certainly angling for it. He was like, I'm going to go and join mm. you on stage in New Hampshire. And he was sort of saying that. So, But yeah, no, that is up for grabs. Yeah, who's who's it going to be? That is really important. I mean, uh, Roger Stone had loads of ideas. He even put in Tulsi Gabbard. He had loads of ideas. And he had some other... He said you don't want it to be someone too boring. But um, yeah, that's a great question. Who is who is going to be that role? I would have thought that, that, that from, from Trump's point of view... DeSantis is more attractive than Vivek because to go back to your 48 laws of power, um, isn't there a risk as Trump kind of gets a little older and crazier, um, Vivek would kind of gain by contrast and could begin to eclipse Trump, whereas DeSantis isn't as charismatic or as kind of energetic as Vivek and therefore would be less likely to kind of outshine the boss. Good point. Uh, he says he's picked six days ago, but he didn't. He won't say who. Uh, there's people making eight predictions here. Christy Nome is mentioned. Elsie Stefanik, she's the one that was very impressive against Claudine Gay, wasn't she? Yeah. In that hearing, Tim Scott, uh, Mike Pompeo, he could come back. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I like her. Byron Donalds, no idea. Marjorie Taylor Greene, too dumb, too mental. Carrie Lake, very good. She's very strong. I like Carrie Lake. But will it be any of those? There was rumours of Tucker at one point, wasn't there? Yes. Yes, that would, that would, be, that would be That would be. What am I doing here? I'm fun, a talk show it? host. I'm not a politician. <laughs> I shouldn't be here. But I am, because America's in trouble. Because <laughs> why? America needs me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think he, 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 I don't think he'd be up for it. Um, probably. Interesting. It's probably with someone quite boring. and pretty. What if it's Nikki Haley? That's what some people are saying. That would be a curveball. Seems unlikely, though. DeSantis yeah, I could think... be a curveball. Yeah, yeah. Maybe DeSantis kisses the ring and just says, "Yeah, look," and just does a groveling statement, and then Trump brings him on board and says, "He tried to go against me, but I've forgiven him for I've forgiven him." You see, you know, he could do a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, I forgave him. Should I forgive him? Yeah, he could do a lot of that, could he? And then DeSantis, just like traitor banter, but he is very big yeah. on loyalty. Trump, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but he has forgiven people like Ted Cruz. He went from mm. like. Lion Ted or whatever it was, sleazy sleazeball Ted Cruz to like totally endorsing him. So mm. he can turn around. Bannon, he's been all over the place on. So it could happen. I'm it's sensing you may be yeah. slightly over this, Toby, so I'm going to move on. But I'm never, I'll am never, i never stop talking about Trump. So maybe the listener will, will welcome us moving on. We don't have much time, actually. We've got to do this quick story back over this side of the pond about uh, Gary Lineker. So... Gary Lineker has removed a social media post that called for Israel to be banned from international football. 
the former England star, now one of the highest profile presenters on the BBC, which we don't really need all this, retweeted a post by the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel, PACBI, on X, formerly Twitter. So in the post, the uh, PACB, PACBI, I don't know how you, how you say it, called for international public and official pressure on international sporting bodies, including football's governing body FIFA and the Olympic International Olympic Committee, to suspend Israel's membership and ban it from international tournaments and games. And they are affiliated with the Palestinian-led boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, BDS, who called for the boy, uh, boycott until Israel ends its grave violations of international law, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Lineker's claim is he thought it was just news that Israel had been banned rather than a campaign to ban them. That's his claim, basically pleading stupidity, which is quite a good angle if you're Gary Lineker. And by the way, this was also um, retweeted favorably, reposted by the Cuds News Network, who said renowned English broadcaster calls for Israel to be banned from international football. And the Kutch News Network is a Palestinian youth news agency formed in 2011, which is affiliated or was affiliated in the past with Hamas. So very, very bad. You're being praised by a Hamas-affiliated group for your lame retweet. And then a further wrinkle is whether it jeopardizes Lineker's role in the Euros, because weirdly, Israel are in the Euros, and... Does it destroy his impartiality? Because he's saying, well, the team shouldn't even be in this. So how can he comment on it for the BBC? So, Toby, what do you think? Well, I'm now going to make the case for the defence of Gary Lineker. Um, and it's it's Gary Lineker's defence, in fact, which, um, which is, um, if you look at the tweet he retweeted from Packby, um, the tweet refers to the Palestinian Football Association, um, uh, uh, and it does sound like Packby is um, putting out a news story. So the tweet said the Palestinian Football Association calls on IOC Media and FIFA.com and all regional and international sports bodies to take an urgent stance on Israel's grave violations of human rights and subject it to legally accountable measures. So it, if you didn't know that Packby is an activist pro-Palestinian anti-Israeli organization, although to be fair, you'd have to be pretty stupid not to realize that because it is the, the, the count is PACB hyphen BDS movement. But nevertheless, Lineker's defense is, I just thought I was retweeting a news story. I didn't realize that the tweet I was retweeting had been tweeted by a pro-Palestinian activist organization and therefore it would look as though I was endorsing kicking Israel out of the Euros by retweeting it. I simply thought I was retweeting a impartially reported news story by a news organization. Uh, and I've now deleted the tweet. Now I realize my error. So um, I mean, it's, it's interesting that he's deleted it. I think um, even the BBC, even, you know, Tim Davey, I think, balked at this and said, Gary, you've got to delete this. Uh, I just we can't defend this you know you you you've gone right up to the edge on numerous occasions up until now you've actually crossed the line now and um you're going to have to delete this one um or we're going to have to get rid of you or 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 you're not going to be part of our euro coverage so presumably with a gun to his head he's deleted it and this is his excuse yeah well one bbc in, uh, insider described it as typical gary while another said this is a worse case than usual <laughs> <laughs> this is bad, even by Gary's low standards. Do you believe yeah. him, though? Case for defence aside, do you believe Gary? 
Now, I don't think I do. I think he probably, <laughs> I said I'd start out by defending him, not doing a great job. I think he probably knew exactly what he was doing and um, didn't realise that uh, this would be as frowned upon as it has been or as big a story as it has been. Um, and so as now, you know, for self-preservation reasons, deleted it and come up with this cock and bull story about not realising it was an activist organisation that he was retweeting. I mean, we know where he stands on the mm. Israel-Palestine conflict, so it's completely in keeping with other positions he's taken, isn't it? That's the key. It's irrelevant because I, let's say I do believe it. It's possible. Yeah, he didn't realise that particular tweet was that. I think that's possible because that's possible just from would you want to get yourself in trouble. It's possible for pure self-preservation reasons. I do believe he cares about self-preservation to some extent. So it's possible he didn't know that tweet well, that ex post was that bad and it was just news because he is thick, but that's his view anyway, as you say. So that would be his view anyway. So it doesn't matter, mm. really. It's academic because, you know, we saw he didn't post anything about October 7th. He, he, he maintains he did. I've seen him replying to people. I think he's blocked me now, but I've seen him replying to people saying he, he, he did, but I, he didn't. He didn't post anything about it, whereas he does mm. post anything, you know, anything else about the terrible things that Israel are doing and Suella Bravman's like a Nazi, blah, blah. We all know these things. We all know where he stands. It's just shocking that people have got that far left. But it's not that shocking because I know all these people in the this kind of extended blob professional class they, they who think like Lineker. It's just become de rigueur for them to have a now extremely far left, well, you could call it far left, but whatever you want to call it, extremely anti-Israel position that borders on pro-terrorism. <laughs> so, yeah, that's just the stance now. So there we are. And um, you wanted to briefly mention as well that Cleverly has officially prescribed Hizbut al-Tahrir as a terrorist organization. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, about time. Um, and uh, we were a bit of an outlier um, amongst European countries for not banning them. Um, and uh, this will have an impact, I think, on the weekly pro-Palestinian demonstrations, which don't seem to have abated much since the, you know, um, uh, New Year. Um, uh, and there was a big one on Saturday, supposedly 200,000 people and lots of really offensive placards being waved about and slogans being chanted. Um, but Hizbut Al-Tahrir um, organised um, some of these protests in the past and they've always had a role in organising the pro-Palestinian protests on Saturdays. Um, so this will be interesting. Um, will Will the police actually arrest you know people who are openly now members of what is a prescribed terrorist organization now uh, will they arrest people for expressing support for Hitzput Alteria um, given that they're now a prescribed terrorist organization I don't suppose it'll make much difference um, uh, uh, from that point of view but at least cleverly has finally done something so you know all the government has finally seems to be taking some action um, uh, which is um, which is good to see yeah, and there's only one slightly strange response to it. What's strange to me, because I'm not an expert, from Majid Nawaz, who said, as all in the counter-terrorism field know, this initiative is inaccurate, counterproductive, and politically driven. His but Al-Tahrir is, or he says it slightly differently, uh, is a revolutionary Islamist, not jihadist terrorist organization. Mixing classifications in this way only serves to undermine legitimate work. He said, so it's terrorism to call for armies of Muslim-majority governments to fight Israel but it's not terrorism for our armed forces to bomb Yemen for Israel. The UK government is completely losing its way on counter-terror policy to placate Netanyahu wing Zionists. It's a farce. 
And he says, um, as you know, if you bothered to ask me, they called for the armies of Muslim-majority countries to fight a jihad, physical struggle. They didn't call for terrorist acts. I'm only a bloody phone call away. Now, to me, as an outsider to this issue a little bit, that seemed a bit academic. But to Majid, apparently, that's a very important distinction. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Majid was um, arrested and imprisoned in Egypt for being a member of a then-prohibited, supposedly terrorist organization, wasn't he, for a time? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can see why he'd be sensitive about this issue. Um but he obviously it's not effective and doesn't work to do this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's, that's always a good argument against um, censorship of any kind. Um, but um, it's it, uh, looking at the, you know, the speakers on his book, Altaria's platforms, uh, some of the demonstrations over the past, uh, well, over the past hundred days and more, um, they don't just seem to be calling for, you know, um, uh, revolutions in Islamic countries. Um, they seem to be calling for, you know, um, intifada from here to Gaza and uh, for the destruction of the state of Israel. Um, maybe they're expressing it slightly differently, but um, uh, it feels to me that um, they're, 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 they, 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 they've crossed the line um, and uh, should now be added to the list of prescribed terrorist organizations. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm fine with it. Toby, do you want to, those are our main stories for the day. Do you want to do our advert? Yeah. So this is an advert from the Stack Assistant. Bitcoin is an index for money laundering, claimed Larry Fink in 2018. As the CEO of BlackRock, with over $10 trillion worth of squeaky clean assets under management, he would know. But now that BlackRock has launched a Bitcoin ETF, Fink more accurately says that Bitcoin is a fight to quality and will protect against monetary debasement. In 2017, the Credit Suisse CEO described Bitcoin as the very definition of a bubble. But it was his bank that imploded, while Bitcoin grows ever stronger. And now the Bitcoin Trojan horse is being pulled into the sclerotic heart of the decaying fiat money citadel by the very banksters it will render obsolete. In the first two days of trading, the Bitcoin ETFs swallowed up 23,000 Bitcoin. At that rate, all the Bitcoin for sale on exchanges will be exhausted in under four months. And before then, the four yearly Bitcoin halving will occur when the issuance rate of the remaining Bitcoin is halved. What happens when increasing demand meets unalterably inelastic supply? We're about to find out. At the Stack Assistant, we offer free advice to help you stack your first sats, as the subunits of Bitcoin are called, and securing your stack into self-custody. Email the Stack Assistant on thestackassistant at pm.me. That's thestackassistant, all one word, at pm.me. All right, thanks to the Stack Assistant. And we have no will this week, so let's go and do everyone's favourite section, which is Peak Woke. So, Toby, I don't know if you have any pressing Peak Wokes this week, but I've got uh, quite a few. One good one that we did on headliners on GB News, I have in front of me here, which is, uh, as alarming report, this is the Daily Mail, reveals women and girls are quitting sports over fears they will be injured. It's revealed a 16-stone trans woman dislocated the shoulder of a female judo rival. 
Did you hear this? I mean, this is just unbelievable. What this was was basically an account of various women just talking about horrific things that have happened to them as a result of men being in combat sports with women. I mean, a 16-stone trans woman broke a woman's finger and dislocated the shoulder of another during a judo tournament. And I recounted doing judo as a young child in, in primary school and being about uh, 8 or 10 or something and being up against boys and doing quite well in the judo because I was reasonably strong. and I was, Everyone was about the same size. and I was, was quite good at judo. But then they put me up against a girl. And I was like, I don't want to fight a girl. It was really weird. I was like, why are you putting me up against a girl? So I just didn't attack the whole fact she would try and trip me. I'd just block the trips and, you know, just stood still, basically. Was never going to be taken down by a girl, but was never going to fight a girl. Why did I know as a young child that you don't you don't physically fight girls, but these 16 stone men don't know? Yeah, it's um, it's shocking. And um, you would hope that um, more and more sporting associations would prohibit biological males from competing against biological females um but it doesn't seem to be happening nearly fast enough all right do you have any i've got a couple more but do you want to go yeah so um uh the maritime museum um uh has created a this is a this is a uh, museum supposedly celebrating britain's uh national maritime history it's maritime history and there is um uh there is um uh a bust of of Nelson in the museum, but they've created this kind of um, uh, they've created this completely fictional uh, goddess called a, the Sea Deity. Um, so an artist has created this bust of um, a entirely fictional deity, um, and uh, she's um, she's she's described in the label below her bust as a godlike protector of all migrants making dangerous sea crossings. And if you listen on the um, headphones that you can buy when you go in the museum to hear a kind of commentary as you walk around, um, uh, she says um, some pretty disparaging things about Nelson. Um, so pretty shocking. Um, uh, but uh, I guess, you know, perhaps not that surprising that um, uh, a, a national museum, presumably funded by um, the government, um, is denigrating one of our most celebrated military heroes. And to do that, they've invented this entirely fictional um, deity created by an artist a couple of years ago. She's apparently genderless, amongst other things, and remonstrates uh, with 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 Nelson in this imaginary dialogue that the museum's curators have created. Um, Nelson says, "Is there anything more glorious than fighting for your country? England expects it." And the fictional goddess replies, "Listen to me. You're not the only ones who have shown bravery and resilience at sea." Many people are forced to make treacherous journeys escaping war. As a protector of migrants, I have no need for your fancy medals and uniform. My armour and life jacket protect people from harm. I carry essential supplies and the precious memories and dreams of every person I protect. What can be more important than that? Wow. <sighs> Pretty incredible. Obviously, it's sad that another five migrants died the other day in these terrible crossings. But that sounds absolutely awful. That does sound absolutely peak woke. I can't top it, but I'm going to give you one more from okay. an end. Yeah, go of, on. Yeah, yeah. End wokeness did an ex post about this, but, and a few people have picked up on this. 
And he says, Marvel just got its first female Native American deaf amputee superhero. No, this is not satire. And this is Echo. And she does indeed have a, a leg missing and has an artificial leg and is a Native American and deaf. And um, now some people pointed out Echo has been around since the late 90s, which was pretty, pretty politically correct as a time anyway. But so, okay, it's not it's not new but this is a new series, I guess, although she has appeared in Hawkeye and things like that before. I've done some research on it. But nonetheless, that is about as woke as it gets. And it looks like she has a new series. So that's about as woke as it gets for a superhero, isn't it? Amputee, Native American, has to rediscover her Native American roots with while having one leg and being deaf. Yes, um, that's pretty peak woke. And I note in passing that um, Marvel had its worst ever year. Um, at the box office in 2023 and its latest offering the marvels um has completely tanked and it really does seem to be a case of get woke go broke for marvel um which seems to have been absorbed by the disney kind of intersectional death star um and uh, and just become a vehicle for woke propaganda which surprisingly there isn't that much appetite for um amongst the american public um but uh yeah it's uh, it's sad but inevitable i think that uh, marvel's just going to now collapse well in a change to the usual toby's got to go soon i've actually got to go soon but do you have any more toby i was just going to mention this um um official peer-reviewed academic journal of the canadian armed forces the Canadian Military Journal has devoted an entire issue um, to um, uh, what a irredeemably racist country um, Canada is um, uh, in a series of 13 essays. Um, uh, the introduction uh, uh, talks about the feminist intersectional trauma-informed approach uh, to reimagining and transforming CAF culture, so the Canadian Armed Forces are apparently being being transformed by kind of um, woke commissars. Um, uh, it, 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 I think across seemingly across the Anglosphere, um, the armed forces have been completely captured um, by kind of the wokesters. They've been very susceptible to the woke religion. Um, you, know, you can understand it happening in universities, museums, the arts, even the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but you would have thought the armed forces would hold out and have some antibodies. But actually, they proved particularly vulnerable to it. And of course, that has coincided, not coincidentally, uh, with a recruitment crisis in the armed forces. So uh, I saw the story if you saw the story this week, but we can't send an aircraft, an aircraft carrier uh, to the Red Sea um, uh, because um, the Royal Navy is understaffed um, uh, and looks as though the Royal Marines may have to be disbanded um, because not enough people want to be Royal Marines. Um, and I imagine it's not, you know, one of the one of the, one of the reasons is that kind of, you know, ordinary white young men who were considering careers in regiments like the Royal Marines think, well, what's the point in applying? I haven't got a chance of getting in. I'm not gay. I'm not trans. I'm not a woman. I don't have a limb missing. Uh, what hope do I have? Um, so, um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the most alarming symptoms 
of the kind of wokeification of public services, the public sector, uh, governments, uh, is the wokeification of the armed forces, which is, you know, as we face an increasingly turbulent world in which we may yet be plunged into war at any moment, um, our armed forces have never been less capable of defending us. So another reason you know, I for suppose- They've also uh, systematically undermined any kind of patriotism and national pride. So that's one reason. And as for the wokeness, I yep. suppose they are by nature quite authoritarian people and quite conformist. So perhaps that's why they've, the army's gone along with wokeness. Just a theory there. But um, OK, well, that is peak woke. And for now, let's go and review the reviews. Loads of reviews, actually probably too many to get through. Thank you for all your great reviews. Someone here put great show and they wrote a very long review, which I can't read out of time, but it was, it turned out by ChatGPT. So that's why I'm not going to read it anyway. But it was a positive review from ChatGPT. But at the end, they wrote, with the greatest love and respect, please shut up about your depression and health anxiety crap. This was addressed to me. The listeners are not your local pub landlord. And just like him, we don't care. It's not what we tune in for. Well, Rollo, as you put your name as, uh, thing about this guy, Toby, uh, this is the person, Rollo, who pays my wages and dictates the content of the podcast. So, of course, I am going to listen. Oh, hang on a sec. Oh, no, it's just some twat on the internet who's <laughs> getting a free product. Sorry about that. I got I forgot for a second. Rollo doesn't dictate what happens on this podcast. And this this claim that the listeners don't care is completely ridiculous because I've had I've been inundated with messages and reviews and emails and all sorts from listeners who do care and have offered me all kinds of advice and help. So why don't you go bleep yourself, Rollo, because uh, you don't care, but you don't speak for the listeners. So, And I doubt you've ever paid anything towards this or my buy me a coffee or Toby's donations or anything. So why don't you get stuff? Then we don't need listeners like that. So the other person, Mark Clive, although you know, I might, I might not talk about it in future, but it'll be up to me if I don't. Mark Clive, one of my highlights of the week. I love the podcast and I'm generally equally Team Nick and Team Toby. However, I err on the side of Team Toby in weeks where he displays his most endearing qualities, which is when he goes E while he is forming his thoughts. This is said with love. Keep up the good work, Mark. I don't know. What does that mean? <laughs> do you go, uh, is that it? Is that, maybe it's I that. think I do, yeah. I think I do. Yeah, okay. Yeah. In, 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 on type, it just looks like a long E, but you definitely don't do that. Um don't panic, pal, says, great to hear Nick feeling a little better. Good to hear so many people reached out. They did. Thank you. Uh, after your, to your neck, after your listener traumatizing mental health offload last week, lol. Okay, I didn't quite, there's a typo there. But anyway, very nice. Uh, very nice. And it just says, I look forward to, I can't read it all, but it says, I look forward to every episode and I love the way you and Toby make me laugh every week. Best wishes for this year, Mark. Thank you very much, Mark. And only gets better for 24 so this is King Wilberforce 11. I've been listening for months and the show is only getting better and better. The whole going post episode was hilarious. Not your soul bearing intro, Nick. That was deep. But once you got onto Vorderman, I nearly wet myself. Great win for the FSU to keep it real. Hope to see you live. The Vorderman bit was hilarious. I listened to back that, that to myself, back to it myself, and it was amazing. Still waiting to be Carol's sixth boyfriend. Um, <laughs> how many more can we do, Toby? We've got so many. In future, we'll, we'll answer questions as well. Uh, I'll just go through a few more. Londoner in the Shire. I like listening to this podcast. Worried about Nick, though, and brave him to divulge his mental health problems. Talks about that for a bit and suggests, I think, CBT for me. Thank you very much for that. Good listen. Says Karate Lass. I love the name Karate Lass. Just a tough northern 
girl. Love the uh, review as well. Thank you very much. And says the live show is great to listen to. Time flies when listening to the podcast. And there's just so many. Keep up the excellent work, guys. Maybe I'll save some for next week because I just... Oh, yeah, there's only one more. So I'll just I'll go for one more, which is Eddie Two Shoes, who says, get on the psychedelics, gents. Love the podcast. Can't help thinking you'd both do well with a decent dose of psychedelics with all this chat about mental health. Ketamine is now being used to help people reduce the amount of alcohol people drink. Both of you talk about wanting to drink less and treat depression. Nick, have a look at LSD or DMT, perhaps some MDMA to crack into that health anxiety, or a load of magic mushrooms. Much love, Ed. <laughs> so Ed Much says, love for James Dellingpole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that would be terrible for me. I mean, some people have suggested psilocybin, and you, apparently you do lose your fear of death, um, someone told me reliably. But it would be quite risky, wouldn't it, I always think. And DMT is the one where you see the clockwork elves and I'm not sure I'm ready to see the clockwork elves, Kobe, because <laughs> apparently they're real and they just exist in a different dimension, but they're not benevolent. Yeah. There are benevolent I, forces, but you don't necessarily see them. Yeah, you do. I mean, I, I think that uh, so, so Michael Pollan um, wrote a book, didn't he, about the therapeutic benefits of hallucinogens, um, in which he does praise psilocybin, I think, as a way of treating depression. Um, but um, it's pretty risky. And I think you're supposed to do it, you know, under the direction of a trained therapist uh, who can help guide you through the trip in a way which is going to be helpful um, for your mental health rather than <laughs> unhelpful. I certainly knew a few people who um, took a few too many magic mushrooms in the 80s in Devon when I was a teenager in Devon and it definitely didn't do any good for their mental health I can say that hand on heart um, but uh, yeah maybe, maybe maybe it's something that might be worth exploring um, we should say Nick that um, this is going to be the last time we're going to be doing review of the reviews and making it available for free um, to all our listeners we're going to be launching basemedia.org next week um, and um, we're going to put review of the reviews in the section that's only available to premium subscribers and you can become a premium subscriber for as little as five pounds a month if you go to uh, basemedia.org next week you'll see what benefits you get at the different tiers and so forth uh, but in addition if you want to ask us any particular questions um, email them to us and we will answer them um, in that section that's only going to be available to premium subscribers from next week. So you can email us at weeklyskeptic at gmail.com and we'll endeavour to answer some of those questions at the end of this particular segment next week. And the whole thing, the segment plus the answers to the questions will only be available to our premium subscribers. And you can become a subscriber for as little as £5 a month by going to basemedia.org when it goes live, which it will next Tuesday. Yeah, questions, comments, if you've paid, we will read it out and discuss it in that section. And it will evolve, and for now it might be quite short, it might get longer, lots of things will happen. But if you support us, and you, we thank everyone who've, who's been on the journey so far, and if you join basemedia.org, you'll get all sorts of benefits, and that's one of them. But we're going to you know, decide over the future what things will be available. The monthly Zoom calls will be a good one. The meals will be a great one if you want to pay for the highest tier, extra content on Weekly Skeptic and other forthcoming shows. So it's going to be very cool. So yeah, absolutely do that and email us questions for next time. Uh, and for now, I suppose go to nickdixon.substack.com where I'm going to be posting a lot more this year and already have. I posted an article about mental health, which you'll be so thrilled to know, not for everyone, but I'll also be doing culture war stuff at nickdixon.substack.com. You can still go to buymeacoffee.com slash nickdixon to support me with a one-off 
donation, which is much appreciated. And, and many, many people have. And I'm going to reply to all of you soon. Thank you so much. And um, what else? Oh, the current thing. We've just done one with Paul Morland. We've just done one with Jamie Franklin. If you really want more of the uh, Christianity and mental health chat, which have, uh, which is not for everyone, but a load of people are loving it. So go to the Current Thing podcast as well. And go to, yeah, well, soon go to basemedia.org or now, depending on when you're listening. Uh, Toby, uh, what do you have for us in the donation? Yeah, I guess we should make it clear that plugs. we're recording this on Tuesday, the 16th of Jan. And if you're listening um, on Tuesday, the 23rd of Jan, or any point after that, you can go to basemedia.org right now and become a premium subscriber. Yeah, I was just going to steer people towards um, The Daily Skeptic. If you enjoy our content, uh, please think about making a regular donation for as little as £5 a month. You can get um, commenting rights and join the lively discussion below the line. Um, and in addition, if you're not already a member of the Free Speech Union, please do join. That's also cheap as chips. Uh, and you can do that by going to freespeechunion.org forward slash join. Um, so those are the only two things I'm promoting this week, Nick. But next week, we will be promoting our next live show, which is going to be at the Hippodrome, same place as before on February the 12th, Monday, February the 12th. And um, tickets haven't gone sale on sale yet, but they will um, later this week. So you'll be able to find those by Googling um, uh, Toby Young, Nick Dixon, Eventbrite, and Hippodrome. You'll pull it up. Yes, absolutely. A lot going on. And another very solidly length episode for you there, even without Will. So still great value from the Weekly Skeptic, however you're listening. So that is pretty much it. Until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.